This is The Red Center, a podcast about The Handmaid's Tale. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. On today's show, we'll be talking about the fourth episode of The Handmaid's Tale, which came out this week. So if you haven't seen that yet, consider this your spoiler warning. Um, also, I want to note that we're recording this on May Day. Oh, right. We are. Wow. Just going to throw that in there. Um, Every week on this show, we'll focus our discussion around one central topic. So later on today, we're going to look at themes of religion in The Handmaid's Tale. But first, let's start with what happened in the show in general. So on this episode, we have a lot of information again. A lot of things happen. Um, I guess that's the nature of like an actual hour-long show where you don't have commercials where like many, many things happen. Um, So we get a lot more of Moira in this episode, which I'm super happy about right which Um, we predicted yes (laughs) one for one um and you sort of see a lot more of the red center sort of like the way that this works and you have this scene i'm probably going to recap this episode out of order because they do a lot of the flashbacks and so i might lump like all of the red center stuff together and then all of the like real world or the modern world together but we basically get sort of a lot of information about the red center and sort of the fact that like these women didn't know that this was what they were being sort of captured and trained to do. We have right. this scene where they basically finally tell them that what they are going to be doing is laying between their commander's wives' legs and, like, having the commander have sex with them. And there's this moment where they're all like, what? Right. Like, it's unclear if they, like, it's possible they knew, like, that they were there to have babies. But, like, it's unclear that they understood, like, the ceremony. They seem to be very weirded out by, like, the presence of the wives, right? Right. And also, I mean, like, Moira says and they have, they're having this conversation in the bathroom. And this is a key part of the book where, like, you know, they can't really talk to each other. So the two of them kind of coordinate to go to the bathroom at the same time, June and Moira. And they talk to each other through this little hole in the, between the two stalls. Um and Moira says at one point, she's like, oh, it's going to be like a turkey baster, you know, of like jizz, you know, that, that'll be how it goes, right? That's sort of what they're right. all, I think, imagining. And then to find out that, no, in fact, you are going to essentially be raped every month um, is just like horrifying and having them all kind of deal with it in different ways and not really knowing how to react, um, I thought was like an interesting scene because I was wondering, like, you know, June says to her, to Moira in the bathroom, she's like, you don't even know what's going to happen. Like, none of them really seem to even know what's going on. And right. you see that again when they escape. So there's also a scene in this episode where Moira and June sort of orchestrate this escape where they basically kidnap one of the aunts. They make her take her clothes off. They put her uniform on Moira. And then they basically have Moira escort June out of the center. And right. there's this moment where they're walking around in the outside world and, like, Nothing is recognizable. They don't know where they are. They don't know what they're looking at. It actually kind of reminded me of that scene in Westworld where, like, they walk around yeah. the, the facility and no one seems to notice that, like, they're not really supposed to be there. Yes. Um, and then eventually they sort of get captured. So June gets captured and Moira doesn't. So Moira gets on the train and goes away and June gets sort of captured and brought back to the Red Center where she's beaten and they sort of do terrible things to her feet and all this stuff. Um You also get, um I think, a really interesting dynamic between Moira and June about how, like, June is very like, keep your head down. Let's just like get through this and let's not make a stink. And Moira is like, oh, hell no. Like, I'm not. And so she's, you know, scratching things on the wall and she's writing and she's doing things she's not right. supposed to be doing. And, and I there's think that's that a moment where yeah. uh, where Alfred said it's not worth it. And then Moira says, yes, it is. And that to me is like I actually wrote it down because I yeah. think that is like a really good capsule of both of their characters. Um, so in this episode, we also have this scene of her either discovering the words or sort of revisiting the words that are scratched in her closet. It was actually unclear to me if she knew they were there before or if she was going back to them. But um, the she sort of finds these little words that say, Nolite te bastardis carborundorum. And she kind of, you know, that's the name of the episode. That's kind of one of the like running themes through this episode. Um, and she's kind of losing her mind, basically, because uh, Serena Joy has locked her in this room for two weeks or something like that where she hasn't been allowed to leave at all and she's sort well, of she actually says crazy. she's not locked in but she was not she was told she wasn't allowed to leave so she doesn't which i think is uh really interesting and it sort of like parallels pretty well back to the to the red center scene where it's like when they're walking around uh with moira dressed as the um as the as the aunt because it's like they go out into the world and no one tries to stop them, right? And that that is part of the weird surveillance culture that they live in, which is that, like, she tells her not to leave the room and she doesn't. She doesn't physically lock her in there. So she's, like, in there for 13 or 14 days and she just doesn't ever disobey. Yeah. Which is right. weird. 
Yeah. I mean, like a lot of, you know, like from the book, like a lot of it is like they're told that if they do things like that, they will just be killed. And so like right. I'm assuming that she kind of knows that and is right. just assuming that. But we don't really know that in the show, I don't think. Um, but yeah, so she stays in the room and so she's and she's remembering a lot about her daughter. And then she kind of has these moments where she basically just like loses touch a little bit with like reality. Yeah. Um, so she's in the closet. She falls asleep in the closet. Cora comes in to feed her breakfast and thinks that she's dead or something and sort of like, because she's laying on the floor in the room. Right. Um, and then she says to cover for what she was doing, which was, like, looking at these words in this closet, she kind of says, oh, I fainted. So they send her to the doctor. And there's this scene in the doctor's office um, where they have the, like, sort of um, veil between her upper body and lower body. And you only really see the doctor's face in sort of these shadows. And he comes in and sort of chats her up like it's totally normal. And he's, like, talking about the tomatoes he's going to grow and whatever. And she <laughs> right. does – they do her little, like, exam – and then the Which is like offers. sort of like normal gynecologist chat and totally my experience. no yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, they're always like so how are you doing and you're like uh, I'm fine <laughs> yeah like kind of not excited about what's about to happen yeah um, so yeah so he checks her and then he sort of makes this offer he says you know your commander's probably sterile like most of those guys are. Do you want me to help you? By which he means, do you want me to have sex with you so that you could potentially get pregnant? And he's got a super, like, gentle, nice voice, and she has to kind of make this decision because that could be a trap. It could not be a trap. And she decides, no, it's too dangerous. And then you get this sort of scene where the commander can't get it up. And then you get this scene with Serena Joy trying to, like, basically give him a blowjob, I'm assuming, to, like, you know, whatever. And he's like, don't do that. So there's this, like, very awkward sex stuff happening. Mm -hmm. Um, And then she goes home. Is there anything else that I'm missing? Well, the scene, the the the, the episode ends with um, more Scrabble. Oh, right, right, right. More Scrabble, more Scrabble. Oh, and she gets him to explain what that the words mean. Yes. Noelite best artist, Carborundorum. And he basically tells her, like, it's sort of a bad joke that, like, kids make. It means don't let the bastards get you down. And then you get, once again, that musical stuff at the end, which I'm still not buying into. And I actually hate the last line when she's, like, it just feels so forced to me um, where she says, like, Nolite te best artist carborum durum, bitches. And I was just like, come on. Well, the other thing is annoying. that because she asks him, uh, Fred knows that uh, that she knows about the previous Alfred, right? He right, knows that right. that's her saying she's in her in her monologue. She's sort of oh, like, oh, he he knows, you know, what is her what was his relationship with her? How did he, you know, how did he treat her? Because in so he was like, were you guys friends? And she's like, yeah, like what happened to her? And he tells her that um, that she killed herself. And she sort of, like, takes away from that, like, oh, so now you're trying to make my life, like, slightly more enjoyable. And she negotiates with him, basically, to get – to allow Serena to, like, let her out of the room, right? So that's how the yeah. episode ends. It en- ends with her walking outside into the sun and some more weird music and the, the – whatever the line was. <laughs> also, this is a dumb question I have. But okay. I had the same question in the book. So he tells her to come down at 9 p.m. Mm-hmm. She does not have a clock in that room. How does she know it's 9 p.m.? It's a great question. I have no idea. <laughs> Maybe she has a secret watch. <clears throat> That'd be, I feel it like, brings, I feel like it brings this is up like another, a stupid question, but like I just always have wondered that. It brings up another <clears throat> question, which I think is uh, one of the things that struck me about the episode, though it's not the main thing. Um, which is we get like a slightly uh, – it answers one of my questions, which is that uh, Fred has a laptop. <laughs> oh, yeah. I noted that too. <laughs> Fred has a laptop. It seems to have internet access. So that's either like a commentary on how powerful he is or the fact that like regular people, even like somewhat like upper middle class regular people still have like internet access because he seems to have – um access to like he's he like says this to his wife too so it's not like he's keeping secrets from her i feel like in the book uh he probably wouldn't have told her this but he's like oh yeah like an aunt um you know escaped to canada and she told them like a bunch of like not true stuff about us and made it sound really bad here and like uh serena comments on like the un having an embargo against the u.s um right so you hear more about like at least like there's a hint that like the rest of the world is like, wow, the U.S. is super fucked up. <laughs> right. Totally. Yeah. 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 I noted that, too. And then like, right, he's like reading an article, although I was it was interesting to me that it was an aunt that escaped because like so far they've been painted as these like very much sort of part of the oppression and sort of like yeah. they're powerful people. They're allowed to read. They're allowed to do these things. They're like, you know, Aunt Lydia is obviously like kind of this main 
force in the show. Right. And so to me it was interesting that it wasn't a handmaid that escaped. It was an aunt. Right. Um, which I think inter- is interesting sort of to like complicate this idea that they are – I mean obviously they are evil but they are also sort of like oppressed in their own way that they would want to escape. Right. But I was wondering if maybe they were like sort of suggesting whether it's true or not that that was Moira. Right. Like – right. Because there is that parallel there. And so that's sort of where I want to back up. And I hate to bring up the book again, but in the book, June or Offred has nothing to do with Moira's escape. She hears right. about it secondhand, right? She doesn't know where she is. And then she hears this story that she tied up Aunt Elizabeth, you know, in the bathroom, stole her clothes and just walked on out. And now I understand why they did what they did in in, in the show, because it allowed them to show us the rest of the world, right? Like they end up in this like subway station and they're like sort of chiseling off the name of the station, which is like Arlington, I think. Yeah. Um, and it sort of is this, like I said, one of the things that I thought about it is that like they just sort of waltz through, right? Like no one approaches them at all until the very last moment when Moira successfully gets on the train and is headed to Boston. And it's unclear actually like offered – again, sort of freezes up, right? Like, it's not like they are, like, immediately, like, take her. So what I think is interesting is that it seems like she sort of screws herself in a way. She just doesn't say anything. They're like, where are you supposed to be? Like, who are you supposed to be with? Because when they approach her, they're, like, actually pretty nice, right? Like, they just sort of greet her and are like, where are you going? And she just sort of freezes up and never even tries to get on the train or says, like, I'm with this. You know, she could have easily said I'm with her but then like it's clear that she thinks well maybe I would you know screw us both or it's unclear exactly what's going on in her head but for whatever reason very offered like she sort of withers <laughs> I thought that was an interesting commentary on just like her being so disoriented that like everything has changed so quickly that like when she's asked where are you going she can't even remember like the name of a place like she couldn't even right. lie because it's like so much of this is so foreign and like there is that kind of constant And you get it a little bit in the show, but in the book, it's really obvious that, like, one wrong answer and one wrong answer could just be a word that's wrong. Like, using a word that you're not supposed to use anymore can totally give you away and they'll just kill you. And that was the thing. Like, whenever I, you know, whenever I realized that they were including Offred in this escape hatch, I was like, well, I know she's not going to get away. So, like, and I know that they don't don't kill her. So, like, what? the hell how are they going to deal with this because like in my mind they would definitely say you're too much of a threat you've seen like the outside world we have to kill you now and or so torture they- her right and to, to tell them like she knows where moira's trying to go right she knows that she's trying to go to the collective she's got the you know like she like right. why they wouldn't they just torture her it yeah. seems like they don't they beat her they allow um aunt elizabeth to beat her feet which is done to a diff- like a sort of like random other character in the book um, which is like sort of really affecting because it's like this is not a part of you that matters. So it is because you have to walk. Um, but but uh, you know they sort of like torture her feet um, and like you know just send her back to the center. Yeah, I was surprised. I mean, the thing too is that like I understand why having June go with Moira in the escape makes sense in the show, but at the same time, like we followed other characters without June, right? Like we followed right. of Glenn, yeah, on her little thing. So like. I was, it was a little interesting that they chose to, instead of just having Moira do her thing on her own, they chose to kind of include her in a way, which I thought, like, again, like, in the book, she would never have gone along with that. Like, she was just, she's right. just too much of a kind of, like, head down, just get along. Like, and even in that conversation in the bathroom she has with Moira in the show, like, she says it's not worth it. Don't, like, I mean, if it's not worth it to write a little bit of, like, words on a bathroom wall, how is it worth it to, like, try to you know, kidnap a, an aunt. And, you know, this is, it just feels a little bit, like, out of character in some ways for her. I think it feels really out of character. I mean, this is unfair based on because I have, like, because I've read the book. But many, many people who are watching this definitely have, too. So I think what's interesting to me is my original gut when we watched, like, the first two episodes, I would say, was, oh, they've sort of really minimized this thread which runs throughout the book from my perspective which is that like she'll do anything she can to sort of fit in and survive uh so she can find out what happened to her daughter and i very early on i was like oh well like the daughter seems to be like much less present in this and the episode does open with a scene of her daughter so they keep bringing her up for sure but to my mind like the fact that like she does try to escape um is like is not in keeping with her like weird 
constant self-preservation, which definitely runs throughout the book. And I felt like was motivated by her daughter, which they've also sort of, I would say, minimized a lot in the show. The one thing also that I thought was interesting, sort of in the same vein of like building June up to be this kind of more of a fighter character than she is in the book. And I kind of understand why you do that, right? If your protagonist is like kind of inherently unlikable, which she sort of is in the book, um, it's hard to like, you know, really rally around them if they're going to be your main lens for which you're seeing the world. Um, But so they have this moment. um, They do a lot more to establish this idea that these women in the Red Center are friends. Like when she her feet get beat Mm -hmm. and they like all bring in these little pieces of um, like food and cookie and stuff from the like from the dinner or whatever they were just eating. And then they all kind of gather around her in this kind of like very sort of generous camaraderie kind of way. And they all smile at each other and they have this moment. And then at the end, it's sort of mimicked again where they're all walking out and they're all kind of they have this like stride about them that is very unlike what you would hear in the book. In the book, they talk a lot about how they walk in this very specific way with their heads down and like this very sort of stilted gait. And at the end of this episode, you see them all kind of like doing this. It's like, like reservoir dogs. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's like I was going to say it's like one of those like Venus shave commercials. Where they're like, I'm coming out. And they're like, just like all like strutting around. And um, I don't I don't want to keep going saying this because I feel like I said this about the music, but I do feel like they are doing it to like give us some reason to keep watching and to hope because otherwise it is so depressing still. I hate to keep saying this, but you know, the book is even more depressing in that, like, you're never given any of these moments of, like, oh, like, I think that that's part of the reason that, you know, I mean, I said, we said this about Offglen, I feel like, um, in the book, she does not trust her nearly as much. And in the book as well, none of the handmaids really trust one another, right? Like the entire, every person is basically an island, right? Every person is on their own, Um, And I think you get that with, like, her relationship with Nick and with uh, Fred. Like, she's extremely guarded. Um, She doesn't trust them. Certainly, they're they're doing a thing with with gender, which I feel like is not in the book, which is that there is a solidarity between uh, at least certain classes of women that, that, like, clearly does not apply to their – to the men, right? Yeah. And so – and I actually kind of like that, but, like, I I think you're right. Like, at the end of the episode – there's, they're doing something at the end of each episode to sort of like go like, okay, now we feel pretty good. We'll see you next week. <laughs> yeah, I just it totally breaks me out of it in a lot of ways. And I, maybe that's the point, right? Like it's kind of what you're saying is like it breaks you out of this like, oh my God, this is horrible. But at the same time, for me, it just like it, it makes me kind of mad. I don't know because like, I'm like you, you built this whole world and if I'm supposed to take this seriously, if I'm supposed to take this threat seriously and kind of really root for these people to like actually get out of this, which I think in the book they're going to do a lot more of than in – or in the show they're going to do a lot more of than in the book. Um, yes. I think You know, sure. I think that there is going to be probably more happy endings in the show than there are in the book. Um, and – uh, I hope that's not too much of a spoiler, but um, <laughs> but yeah, I think that like you know they're they're doing that obviously, but at the same time, part of me is like, I, if it's not, I mean, not that it's not that bad. I don't want to be like mm, it seems fine to me, you know, like they're you know they get to walk around outside with like music playing, um, <laughs> right. but at the same time, like if you're building up this whole thing about how horrific this is and then we're ending every episode with this kind of like jaunty music and like kind of funny like sort of irreverent thing i think that there are ways and i think i said this in the last episode there are ways to bring in the jokes and i do think they've brought in a lot more humor into the show than they that was ever present in the book yeah um i mean the narrator would make jokes in the book but like i think here you have more sort of more of the like side eye more of the little jokes that people are making and i i feel like to me that like ending note is has for every episode just fallen totally flat just kind of made me like annoyed there is solidarity like there is power in sort of like it's they're not completely powerless, right? They have something that the people who sort of are in power do not have, which is they they can give birth, right? And so there is there does seem to be like a growing awareness that like they can't actually just kill them whenever they want because if they kill all of the women who can have children, they're completely fucked. So I think that was one thing that I sort of as I read the book, which I feel is like very close to perfect in terms of like a short novel um, that I thought like maybe like I I don't want to put myself in that position because who knows I would probably just immediately kill myself but there's also power in doing that right like in deleting yourself in refusing to play the game and I think that like what they're showing us in in the show to a to a certain degree uh, better than I think is done in the book because it just doesn't happen at all is 
they're like the sort of group group growing awareness of the handmaids that they do have some power. And that is sort of what I think is supposed to keep us watching. Yeah. And that isn't really present in the book at all. Right. Like there is no real sort of camaraderie. I mean, there is in the Red Center a little bit, you know, and there is that question of, you know, I think they talk about in the book that like on certain days when like on salvagings or what they call persecutions in the book, that's when you can find out information. You can kind of talk to other handmaids right. and say, D- have you seen so and so? You know, have you seen this person? You know, you get information. And it's also like unclear if maybe it exists and she just isn't part of the game. Do you know what I mean? Like that well, is you know a sense it does that I, in the book, right? right. Like because you, yeah. you get off Glenn being like there is this, there is a resistance and she tells right. her and she says you you are in the house in the book. She, off Glenn says you're in the house of a very powerful commander. Go find out what you can find out. And in right. the book, she doesn't. She decides not to. Um right. because she's too scared because she's not that kind of person. And in the show, I think we're going to see that that's not going to be the case as much. Right. Um It's interesting. Um, I don't. I'm curious how you feel. I hate Waterford so much. Uh, Fred and like yes, Fred. (laughs) Uh, I just like find him like really appalling. Actually, more I think than like Serena Joy. Um, And I'm curious how you feel about him. And after this episode, Uh, I definitely feel less bad for him. Um, When I was watching the show, and he. could not uh, keep an erection. I, for, there was a moment where I thought like, oh, what a, you know, what a horrible situation for him. And then I was like, wait a minute, fucking for him, you know, but it was Jesus like, just a, it was like a blinking of a moment, but I don't, you know, I, I do think that like, this is where you get into like the complicated nature of everything. He is detestable. He's the worst, like he, refuses to acknowledge or like i mean when he talks about and he tells serena you know oh this this aunt you know escaped and she's telling like the worst version possible of it blah 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 you can see he's lying right like you can see he's deluding himself he's like oh it's he's basically implying like it's actually like pretty good here and this woman escaped and is making it sound awful for the outside world which is presumably still normal right um and i think that that level of self-delusion, no one else in the world seems to have it, right? Serena is a bitch and she's awful to offer it, but it's because she clearly is aware of how fucked up her life is. It seems like Fred, like, refuses to engage with that at all. And, uh, you know, he waltzes through the house like he's, you know, the man of the house in 1950. And it's very... Uh, it's like really disgusting. He's, he's very like Don Draper in a way, right? Like he's sort of flaccid within the context of his own family and home, but he presumably goes out into the world and does whatever he wants. And that's not true for anybody else who lives in the house. So I think that they're portraying him as like sort of mopey and sad within his own house, but that's because they've created like a home life that stinks. And I'm sure whenever he goes out and does whatever he does in the world, he sort of offhandedly mentions like, oh, I had to go to Mexico. It's like, oh, well, that's cool. Like, definitely no one else is flying off to Mexico, right? So he's like, oh, it's very stressful or something. He says something, like, completely insane where you can see, like, Offred probably – I mean, maybe I'm reading into it, but it seems like she wants to punch him, you know? It's like, oh, it's so stressful. I had to go to Mexico. And she's like, well, I've been sitting in one room for 14 days because I wasn't pregnant. (laughs) Yeah. So, yes, I hate him. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, there's also this moment in the episode um, that, like, actually, I think, like, sort of calls back a little bit to your moment of feeling a little bit bad for him, like, when he can't get it up, because I did not (laughs) feel bad for him at all. I just sort of burst out laughing. (laughs) It was just, like, the funniest thing. Um, I mean, to me, like, you know, you read about the sex scene, and it's, like, kind of weird. And then when you have to actually see it, it is so much funnier than, like, I thought about it in the book. Because in the book, I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird and gross. And it is gross. It's, I mean, it's rape, right? Like, this is not, like, we're not trying to be equivocal about it. But it's also, like, kind of funny. Like, because it's so weird and it's so awkward. And just, like, to actually have to look at it and see it happen and see that, like, and and I think in the first time they show it, they do it in slow motion, which just makes it even more weird. And you have, like, this, like, thrusting. And it's just, it's just so weird and, like, almost funny. It's not funny, but, like, makes you laugh almost because of how absurdly horrible and, like, just awkward the whole thing is. Yeah. Um, I mean, to your point about, like, sort of cogs in a wheel, I think that that's, like, a really great thing that they're playing with in general and that I think the book doesn't do quite enough to, to say, and I think they're doing a better job in the show, which is that, right, like, 
all of these people are complicit, even if they're silent, right? Like silence is violence in this book and in a very or in the in the show in like a very strong way. And you also have you know you have the boss who is like, I'm sorry, you know, it's not me. They made a rule and he fires all the women. Like he didn't have to do that, you know. I mean, yes, there are like people with guns there, but like there are way, you know, it feels like there's a lot of people who just kind of did the one thing to try to kind of get by, and then here's where we wind up. And um, everybody getting and everybody doing that, everybody falling in line is what allows them to. I mean, I think about this all the time, right? Like, I think, like, would, it, would I, in any situation where this was called for, and I like to think of myself as, like, a very brave sort of uh, individual. Like, I don't think of myself ever as, like, part of a group much. Like, I've always thought of myself as a loner. But I think that this is, like, a true test of that kind of character. And I think that the only person they have shown to be consistently, like, fuck this is Moira. Yeah. I I still am going to predict more Moira in the future, and I I think she's going to come Absolutely, back in some way, sure. and I'm super excited about it. Right, because she's the she's the anchor at this point, right? She's the only thing. It's not just that she got away or got out, but like tiny acts of defiance are really important. I think in this world too. So I think the the Aunt Lydia sucks thing that she's carving on the wall is like. It's funny because it is pretty like middle school, but at the same time, like that is where you learn to first sort of rebel against, um, you know, sort of like minor league powers. And I think that like it is really powerful in that way that like she can't really escape at that point. She can't really stop um, them from torturing her or doing whatever they're doing to her, but she can like let them know by carving this in the wall um, and it, it parallels, you know, forward in time to the words that she finds in the in the closet. And I think that they are showing that parallel, even though they have, like I like we said, like she disobeys a lot more in the show than in the book. But I do think that they're showing us clearly the person who was in this room before her dropped out, right? She didn't she didn't stick around. She carved some words on the wall um that are like a sort of nose thumbing gesture and then she you know hung herself and i think that um parallel between her and moira is clear and i think that the difference between her and offer is there too yeah i mean and to like put a fine point on it right you get that conversation with moira in the bathroom where she says it does matter because the next woman who comes into this room and reads this is going to know she's not alone and then you have june on the floor reading that and feeling like she's not alone so like they're right. doing that very specific callback to say like moira is right like moira right. is right she's, here she's the woman <laughs> yeah and like i do think that like you know i think i mentioned this earlier but like having moira be like a black lesbian is like very important to this like relationship too in the mm-hmm. way that like she knows in a way that i think you know this like white straight lady can't or doesn't that like this is not a game, this is not a joke, and if things go bad, like they go bad for her first, right? And like yeah. she's not really willing to like sit around and see what happens because yeah. she knows what the stakes are. And yes. I think that like that is an interesting thing that you see. I mean, you get it in the book, you get Moira, she's a very strong character, but I think making her black in the show is like a very specific thing that kind of really points out the differences between the two of them. So let's talk, we were going to talk this episode about religion. Mm-hmm. Um, and do you want to like get into some of that now? I mean, we have yeah. a couple of things in this episode that specifically point to religion. Obviously, we've had some stuff in the past episodes that have two. Um, I mean, there's lots of stuff. So do you want to start? So I think presumably, just at a very basic level, um, this was, you know, a religious coup. Right. That is the sort of basic. It's not like a like a communist atheist revolution. Right. This is a group of fundamentalists who have um, taken over part or entirely the United States, Um, which is, uh, you know, I think in 85 when she wrote when Margaret Atwood wrote the book, um, make made sense then and makes sense uh, to I think especially to people who don't live in the US um it makes sense I think that we're tended where we people tend to think of us as sort of religious fundamentalists from the out, outside and I think that um it's a very uh so not obvious but it makes sense given the problems of this world which are like fertility problems right so it's not just about uh rolling back women's rights or whatever fun like but at a fundamental level their political backbone is based in religion which i think is you know you can the the problem with with a sort of religious government is something that we're fundamentally sort of theoretically opposed to um is that you know you always have to come to this point where you question their 
dedication to the to the tenets of their religion. And it's unclear to me. Um, let's talk about what their religion looks like. Yeah. I mean, it, it, the religion here, and I think that this is a very specific choice, is like very controlled by a certain number of people, right? The like, I mean, it's literally the Bible is in a box that is locked by a key and that <laughs> yes. only Waterford has the, or like only yeah. the commanders have the key. So like mm-hmm. you you cannot read the Bible if you are not a certain person. And right. so there's a very controlled interpretation. Right. And so yeah. and we saw in one of the earlier episodes where they say blessed are the meek. And then when she continues the rest of that scripture, she gets punished because you're not supposed to know that part. You're only supposed to know the parts that they tell you because those are the parts they're going to use. <laughs> right. Um, and so, like, you know, the, their their religion seems to be based around sort of the story of Rachel and Jacob. Um, so Aunt Lydia says when she's describing basically the fact that they're going to be raped once a month by their commanders, um, she says, quote, When Rachel saw that she'd bear Jacob no children, she said unto Jacob, Give me children or else I die. And Rachel said, Behold, my maid Bela, go unto her and she shall bear upon my knees that I may have children by her. That is his word, dear. And so, or that's what, you know, Aunt Lydia says. So basically saying that, like, they're going to use this particular story from the Bible in which Jacob ends up having children with Bila, the maid, because Rachel can't have children as kind of the tenant, I would say, of, like, this entire yeah. thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and Bila does have two sons, right? That, like, it does work. Uh, and they are, I guess, Jacob and Rachel's sons. That's right. how they're considered. Right. Well, okay, so um, there's nothing out of the ordinary in that. You know, I I mean, I think what's interesting about what they're doing is that religion um, generally and many fundamental religions particularly uh, cherry pick whatever they want from whatever piece of the Bible they're looking for. And I think that the reason the Bible is locked in a box is that there are plenty of other parts of the Bible. So, you know, if you have, you know, before the Bible was in print, uh, most people didn't have access to the full text. And so once people did, and once literacy started to spread, people started to notice that there were other parts of the Bible which contradicted some of the other parts, and that the Bible was actually open to a lot of interpretation. And I think that that was, you know, revolutionary in terms of human history, and I think that it's revolutionary in the show. I think the fact that she can quote the Bible is interesting, but um, especially since she doesn't, she's not allowed. I mean, it's it's unclear to me actually, like if, if Serena Joy is allowed to read. In the book, she's not. In the book, I think right. it's only the men. I could be wrong about that, but I, I'm pretty sure that in the book, it's only the men. She watches television, men. but uh, it's unclear to like what extent she knows about what's going on in the world, right? Like clearly uh, Fred is the person who gives her all of the information about right. the and world. Says, and don't worry your pretty little head, dear. I'll take care of it. <laughs> right. It's very like 1950s or 18, uh, 1690s housewife. <laughs> yeah. yeah. No yeah. difference, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, I mean, I think for me, the religious framework is really compelling in that um, I sort of equally deride all <laughs> religions. But I think that, you know, I think it's a very like, very much like Old Testament cherry picking, um, not that part of it, it to me is very compelling because it happens all the time. Um, and so they don't seem to be religious people. That's what I will say. They do not seem to be overly religious people. They seem to quote the Bible only before this ceremony. Um, there's not a lot of like, I wouldn't say they're like pious people, right? That doesn't seem to be a thing that's happening, right? You don't really see them like praying. They don't go to church. There doesn't seem to be any kind of religion outside the context of like this particular thing. Right. Right. It's a military society, really, dressed up as a religious one. Yeah. So I don't know how deep we want to go on this because most of this is just fun facts, but I found a bunch of references in the show and book that like relate to the Bible um, or that are come from directly from the Bible. Um, so uh, the eyes are a biblical reference. Um, so, oh, interesting. Uh, I didn't know that. So the in 2 Chronicles, it's uh, it says, quote, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in the behalf of them whose heart is perfect towards him. So it's basically like the eyes of God are everywhere. And so the eyes is a, is a note or a biblical reference. Um, the game right. Gilead is also a biblical uh, place. Yeah. Um, it is referred to several times in the Bible. It is often referred to as the Hill of Testimony. Um, but most interestingly, Gilead was probably a place that um, the Jews sort of encountered in their movement between Egypt and Israel. So it's sort of like on the way to the Holy Land. Um, and it's often sort of in 
sort of biblical scholarship referred to as kind of a zone of transition. So like they've left Egypt, they're going and they're trying to find the Holy Land, but they haven't gotten there yet. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, there's a lot of like interesting stuff about Gilead in general as like a place in the Bible where people are kind of – not quite at the Holy Land yet, but they're going there. So it's sort of like, I think, because they talk about, you know, in the book at least, I don't think they've talked about this in the show where like these first handmaids are kind of told like, oh, it's so hard for you, but it's going to be easier because like, you know, the next women are going to learn from you and they won't have known what was different before that, you know, and all right. all of that stuff, um, which is sort of interesting. Um, and then, let's see, I, I read a bunch of like weird scholarly papers about this because I got interested um, in it. Well, I mean, it's definitely a society that's not interested in any sort of religious freedom, right? Like, I think that, and that's a really complicated question for most even very religious people, but I do think that at a base level for most modern religions, and I don't mean, like, I mean modern religions in that, like, they've survived till now, there is some... uh unless you're extremely like a fundamentalist, uh, there is some question, there's some understanding of sort of being tolerant of other people's religions. That's the way we sort of deal with people of other faiths in a modern context. But these, and I I feel like, I I don't know if they've referenced it in the show specifically, they do tear down the church, which is like, it's a very like whatever visual, but I think in the book they mention them hanging, um, Catholic priests. Yeah. Yeah. Um, which I agree, like, I feel like Catholics would be the first to go um, in terms of, like, other Christians. Because they actually know the Bible. <laughs> um, I, I mean, just feel like Catholics are, like, if you're going to hate, like, a group of Christians, like, very often Catholics <laughs> are the are the easiest ones to start with. Um, and so, I mean, I'm trying to figure out, like, but again, like, it doesn't, it, it definitely seems like a very, like, convenient conception of religion. They don't even seem like fundamentalist, modern fundamentalist Christians, right? Like I think of all of the sort of other like recent offshoots of Christianity and it does not seem like they don't like, again, they just don't seem like religious people. They seem to be quoting the Bible um, in, you know, for five seconds once a month. And then they're sort of like, okay, we're done with that now. Um, But I feel like (laughs) there are a lot of religious people who do that. I'm sure but that like, there are quote, yeah. quote the Bible and then say like, well, I, well, I, I don't like, you know, I think there's a lot of people who don't go to church, but, but then we'll say like, well, no, you know, gay people are wrong because the God says, yes. So. Yeah. Uh, which it's, like, it's a great excuse for bad, for your like bad opinions for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I do want to share one other story that happens in the Bible in Gilead because I think it's interesting. Um, and because I in, enjoy these kinds of trivia. Um, but basically, so in, in the book of Genesis, Jacob flees from his abusive father-in-law and uh, he goes to Gilead um, and he brings with him his family and his slaves and his flocks and his wife, Rachel. Um, and Rachel actually, this is before they have like sort of become followers of God, of the the one true God. Um, and so she smuggles with her these little like idols from the house. Um, it's not super clear what they are, but they're, I guess they're like little things. They're just like little idols. Um, and when Jacob's father catches up with them. He's like extremely pissed off and he wants his idols back because I guess they're valuable and she's stolen them. Um, And she hides them. Rachel hides them in her dress and sits on them. So when the father comes and like is looking for them, she claims that she can't get up because she's menstruating, which is a little Mm -hmm. bit strange. And so like he never finds the idols. Um, And uh, it, it's interesting because a lot of the sort of stories about this or the way that this story is kind of interpreted later is that these little idols really like impact Jacob as representations of this sort of insidious past um, as sort of these like relics of this thing that he used to believe or this life that he used to have that he doesn't have anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is like an interesting element in this story. And then another key piece of the story from the Bible is that it's often used to show among some people that Rachel, since she was the one who like wouldn't let the items go and she stole them and she brought them and she didn't want to like kind of let them go with all her other stuff and all the other sort of relics of this past um, is weak and like women need the patriarchy to care for them. Um, And so you have this story, which I think, I mean, like I would guess that Atwood knows this story and this is part of why she chose Gilead as like the name of the place um, because it is sort of this story that shows that like, A, there's this past that can come and haunt you and into into your new life and then also that like women, you know, it's the same classic story of Adam and Eve. Like women can't be trusted. They need to be sort of protected and taken care of and guided by men, which is the exact sort of world that these women in The Handmaid's Tale live in. So that's just my fun Bible trivia for today. I agree. And I think that, you know, um, 
if we can agree on one thing, which it's that, you know, most religions have, I mean, I don't, I don't like to generalize because I don't know that much about religion, <laughs> but I know, the, <laughs> I know the basic, I know the basic outlines of many of them. Um, most of them are not that great when it comes to women. And I think that sort of dovetails interestingly into something that I don't want to spend a lot of time on, but I've thought about it in recent weeks, um, which is when that original feminist uh, kerfluffle happened um, where Elizabeth Moss answered the question badly about how you know she approaches feminist roles and she sort of ducked out on it, which she did. I want to update everyone. She did make a statement like the next day and say – you know, I don't know what I was trying to say then, but I'm a feminist full stop. This is a feminist role, something like that. Like she realized, and I think I predicted actually that she would either get a better answer or stop talking about it. And I think she did. I think she was like, I fucked up and I'm sorry. And like, this is what I wanted to say for real. Um, but the point is that there were a couple of pieces and uh, a couple of tweets and, and stuff where people basically were like, and I think I even said to someone that I know was like, you know, I was like, oh, well, you know, uh, Elizabeth Moss is a Scientologist. And they were like, what? Um, which I feel like this is a, a fairly well-known thing. There's like 10 celebrity Scientologists. I can name every single one of them, but Go. she, she's one of them. She, she's like a, she was raised as a Scientologist, uh, which is like there aren't that many people in the world who are raised like from birth as Scientologists. Um, Giovanni and Marissa Ribisi, who are both other also actresses. One I of don't them. Don't even know who those people are. <laughs> um, well, Marissa Ribisi is married to the um, uh, to Beck, and he is also a Scientologist. Though I think he okay, is I a who that convert. Is. Tom Cruise is a famous Scientologist. I know who that is. <laughs> um, Leah Remini is a famous former Scientologist. Uh, John Travolta and his wife are Scientologists. Anyway, um, you know, someone pointed out that she was a Scientologist and they said, oh, maybe this is why she had a shitty answer. Oh, that's um, not true. I don't she think a shitty it, answer because she's a white lady. I don't think she I don't think it informed her answer. I agree. But it is fair to acknowledge that Scientology has some um, interesting. Uh, <laughs> interesting is a good word for it. <laughs> Interesting beliefs about uh, women and lots of other things. The the main thing that I know about Scientology is that they um, are essentially, for all intents and purposes, opposed to modern psychiatry um, and sort of like antidepressants and drugs like that. So that's that's my main like point of reference of their anti-modernity, which I find to be, of course, deeply troubling. Um, But I don't actually know sort of like the rundown of how they – um, feel about women. Um, clearly would you like are, to learn? Yes, I would love to. <laughs> um, so, I mean, what, what Scientologists believe is like slightly contentious in some ways. It's like, what do they really believe? Like, is it the book? Is it like L. Ron Hubbard's book? And I think many of them would say no, like that they don't like, it's not a word for word literal, literalist interpretation. But I will tell you some things that Hubbard believed. And I will tell you some stories um, from women who have left the um, Scientology and kind of talk about it a little bit. Um, so in 1950, Hubbard wrote a book. Um, this is sort of pre his book on Scientology specifically, but he wrote a book called Dianetics, the Modern Science of Mental Health, which sort of is similar to what you're talking about. They're like against sort of modern psychiatry. But he has this whole section in it about abortion um, and mm-hmm. saying that, you know, attempted abortions could cause traumatic experiences felt by the fetus, which basically he thinks that if anyone, even if a mother thinks about abortion, thinks about aborting the baby, the baby will be like intent- scarred forever. He has this whole like really offensive segment where he's like basically saying like all of the sort of disabled people in the world were probably like their moms probably thought about aborting them and that's why they're disabled. Or like he's got a lot of stuff about that kind of stuff. Um uh-huh. Here's a quote. The child on whom the abortion is attempted is condemned to live with murderers who he actively knows to be murderers throughout his weak and helpless youth. So he gets, thinks that the babies who are born will sort of like inherently know that their mothers thought about or even attempted to uh, abort them. Um, but like, and, but just to say, I mean, yeah. he differs basically not at all from most religions in, in, in agreeing oh, that abortion totally. is murder. Okay. Correct. Great. Correct. Wonderful. Um, so Scientology also has a lot of sort of um, – they do this thing called auditing, right, where they, like, ask mm-hmm. you all these questions, sort of like interviewing that they do a lot. It's basically confessional. It's not that different. Um, except, I guess, in confessional, you you have to say things. You're not really asked a lot of questions. But um, one of the main questions they asked is, have you ever been involved in an abortion of any kind? Um, oh, God. 
And so, like, they ask you this. This is very specific and sort of, like, very intentional. They really want to know, like, sort of even if you've, like, considered the idea of abortion. Mm-hmm. Um, but then there's also sort of this interesting thing. So a lot of women who've left Scientology actually say that um, they're sort of a unsurprisingly sort of a double-edged sword or sort of they're two-faced about it. So one former Scientologist said that if a woman got pregnant while she was at Sea Org, which is sort of their like high, high-level retreat thing, that she would either be sent to a lower-level organization or she'd be pressured to have an abortion because you're not supposed to – no one is supposed to have kids or like get pregnant or anything like that at Sea Org. Um, right. So in 1965, um, so Hubbard wrote this book, Scientology, A New Slant on Life. So there's a section – there are many sections that are no longer printed in the book, um, but one of them is uh, that has now been omitted is called A Woman's Creativity. And it basically describes the world of the, the Handmaid's Tale. Right. Um, it says, quote, the whole future of the race depends on a, its attitude towards children and a race which specializes in women for, quote, mental purposes or which believes that the contest of the sexes in the spheres of business and politics is a worthier endeavor than the creation of tomorrow's generation is a race which is dying. He basically goes on to say that, like, women's role is to have babies and if they do anything else, they are, like, bad and they should not be doing that. And mm-hmm. that society that doesn't focus on women as baby makers will fall into chaos and uh like fail um i agree i agree (laughs) um and then there's one other interesting thing that i will say about scientology um is and that's i so i i'm like kind of obsessed with like people who've left scientology um and so there's all these blogs that are written either anonymously or not anonymously by women mostly who have left um this is from an anonymous blog so like you know take with whatever grain of salt that you want to in terms of how true some of these things are but um there was a story that she told about um, being um, – so, so if you're at Sea Org and you do something bad or wrong, you get sent to this place called the Rehabilitation Project Force, which is basically for like disgraced Scientology people. It's <laughs> their very names for things are amazing. I know. <laughs> um, and so she was doing something there and she smiled at a woman she was working with and she was taken off for an ethics interview to find out if she was basically a lesbian trying to have sex with this woman, which reminded me a lot of the interview that we have seen with Offred in the show. Um, so they interview her right on, I think it's episode two or three. Um, I think it's episode three where basically it's saying like, hey, you know, did of Glenn ever try to have sex with you? Did she ever try to kiss you? And they're very obsessed with whether they are lesbians together. Um, right. And according to this woman who left Scientology, she basically was like, I'm not answering these questions. This is ridiculous. And they beat her up uh, and basically like locked her away. Right. Um, so... There's sort of like an interest, couple of interesting parallels. I do think that like you can find stories like this in lots of religions, and I don't think it's specific to Scientology. Um, but right. there, there are lots of things within Scientology that you can kind of point to and say like, oh wow, it's kind of weird that you have someone who is a Scientologist playing a role in this show that like depicts this society that could ostensibly be an extreme version of Scientology. Yeah. But I mean, it would be the same. And I think your point earlier, I don't know if we got it on the mic or not, is like, would we be asking these same questions if she was a devout Catholic? Uh, probably not. And You don't think I, so? I, because I the mean, show maybe. is so specific I, about quoting from the Bible. I mean, it's possible. I mean, I think what's interesting about, I think that the reason Scientology comes up a lot in in sort of current debate about religion is, first of all, they're... They're extremely high profile because it's a recent religion, which leads people to um, call it not a religion, but a cult. And I think I said to you earlier before we started that, you know, as a um, atheist, (laughs) I sort of take issue with that um, sort of splitting hairs over that definition because, um, you know, it's like uh, if you're a vegetarian, you sort of go, well, eating a dog and eating a cow are about the same to me. Um, I feel this way about religions like Scientology to me. Uh, I don't think it's cool, but I also don't really think that any religion is that cool. They all sort of have these, uh, fundamental foundational beliefs, which are extremely problematic. Not all of them, but so many of them, especially the Judeo Christian religions, they all have a sort of foundation, which I, as a modern person take issue with. Um, what's interesting about Scientology is that it's of course practiced by mostly rich people. Um, I would assume mostly white people and, uh, it's very recent 
And it's also has proved to be sort of highly adaptable. I think that, um, and I think that like people very, get very upset about this. If you say like, well, you know, Al, Al Ron Hubbard uh, was opposed to abortion. Well, if you look at the current Scientology website as I am, they say we take no official position on this. Um, we're, uh, they, they even, it even says, we know that in certain instances uh, it's medically necessary, but we take no op- op- opinion on, we take no official position on this. Um, clearly they don't like it, um, but they don't want to say that anymore. Um, and I think that you can say that's hypocritical or you can say that's evolutionary, <laughs> but I think it's true that all, all religions adapt with the times. I think that's partially what we're seeing in the show is they're, they're, picking and choosing the pieces that they need that serve them at that exact moment to their ends. And I think that that is what religion does. I think that that is what makes it useful. I think that's what makes it meaningful to people. And I think that the religions that sort of fail to adapt often suffer. So, I mean, for me personally, um, I wouldn't say that her religion is, uh, not pertinent in any way. I just think that very religious people in Hollywood are um, pretty rare, but I don't actually know if she is very religious. What I know is that she was raised as a Scientologist. She used to sort of comment upon it and now she doesn't anymore. But all of the things that I've read that she has sort of said on the record about Scientology have been pretty like you know, she's like, ah, you know, I find it to be useful for certain things. I wouldn't say she's like Tom Cruise level uh, where he was, you know, advocating for it. I think that Scientologists in America, particularly because they've taken a lot of criticism um, with sort of high profile people leaving and writing books um, about, about, you know, how fucked up they are. I think that they're definitely on the defense, sort of the same way that like Catholics were um, when it was sort of exposed that, you know, the Catholic church had been covering up for, you know, 20, 30 years, this like pattern of abuse, but that it, that's like what the Catholic church is doing. So if she was a Catholic, would I say like, how could she be a Catholic? Because these fucked up priests have been, you know, raping children for 30 years. And like, you know, how do people still go to church? And I think that that is like a, a real problem with religions. I think that organized religion tends to look a lot like, um, sort of bureaucratic government, um, and so I don't know. I, I just, I'm just trying not to give preference to Scientology because I'm not sure that it's like has any, I don't really think it can hold a candle to, um, like Catholicism, which has a long history of doing really awful things. <laughs> yeah. For me, the question of and like, I can only say that I'm, I'm Catholic, so I'm, I'm not like disparaging Catholics on purpose. It's just what comes to mind because it's like, it's how I was raised. <laughs> Yeah, I think for me, the like question of uh, like, is it a cult or a religion is sort of like the question of like, is a hot dog a sandwich where it's like, it sort of just depends on like what your definitions (laughs) are going to be like, you know, it's like you can make arguments either way. And then you get into like, is there a bun? Is the bun connected? Like, I don't know. I just to me, my like distinction is if you can casually practice something, it's not a cult. Right, a cult like you have to either like be fully a hundred percent like just doing it, and like you're at a compound somewhere, and you like literally you're either a hundred percent or you're zero percent in. And a religion like, and it seems like Scientology is perhaps more like this. You can kind of like pick and choose from the scripture as suits your questions and sort of suits your like you know what you need. And her thing about it being useful, it's like many people find certain teachings of Christ useful, and like right are good people and, like, aren't abusing anybody, you know? And, like, the, the sort of that's... But, like, it's an arbitrary distinction that, like, you can argue about for hours, which I have done recently about what the difference between a cult and a religion is. Um, but, well, yeah, I, mean, I do think that, like, anytime you have somebody, particularly in a show like this, where there are really clearly, like, cult-slash-religious themes being used and sort of employed to sort of suggest things uh, and to sort of being used in the name of oppression. I do think that, like, anybody who was playing the, like, title character who was of any kind of, like, religion and sort of noted, I think we'd be talking about it. I mean, if she was a Catholic, right. we'd be talking about it because they're using the Bible, you know, to, to like, uh, you know, justify some of this stuff. Well, do we know the religions of anyone else who is in the show? That's the thing. No, that's, but I think that's it's what like, I'm asking. I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. But she is I the think, main, main character, right? Like, there are, right. like, everyone else is pretty, I mean, like, much more, super, like, super right. on the outside. I think that Scientology is a, like, a biographical fact. That's what I'm saying. Like, I think that in our current sort of 
the way that the media works and stuff. I, I heard some people say like, oh, it's not being commented on that much. But if you look at any profile ever written about Elizabeth Moss, it's like in the first paragraph. Um, what is interesting to me, just to sort of like throw in this last piece, is the concept of like being a convert to the religion versus being a um, a person who's raised in this religion. I think it's interesting with Scientology, particularly because it's so new that there's not actually that many like raised. I was raised as a Scientologist. Most people actually convert into it by like, that's like Tom Cruise. Like I think his first wife was a Scientologist and, and he converted and, and, and so he's like really gung ho. Right. And it's interesting to me because, uh, when I was getting married, my husband is Jewish and I had a very small brief window, um, where I thought like, well, Judaism is like, preferable to Catholicism. So maybe I'll convert. And my husband was like, eh, I don't, whatever, I don't care. You do whatever you want. But I said to someone else, not in my family or my husband's family, but a, like a friend of mine who was Jewish, I said, I'm thinking about converting. And they were like, oh, you know, Jewish converts are always so over the top. And I think that that, <laughs> and I think that, that is like a perception out there that we have, which is like, as a per, like you're, if you're born into a religion, it's like, it's you're born that way, right? Like you're, you're born into it. Your parents sort of make this decision for you. You have no choice in the matter and you may, you know, pull some things from it. You may reject it completely, but it's like sort of a passive fact about you. When you uh, convert as an adult, it kind of suggests like you're really into it, right? Like you've chosen it. You've sort of educated yourself. I mean, lots of people convert for marriage. That's, I mean, that's when, that's the only time I've ever considered it. But I think it does suggest like a sort of avid, like this is one of my pursuits in life. One of my hobbies in life is like now I'm Jewish. Um, and that may be temporary. Maybe you may, there are lots of reasons to sort of convert. I, um, my, my, uh, my, my childhood friend's uh, father remarried and his wife was like a Lutheran and she became Catholic. My, my grandmother herself had converted from Lutheran to Catholic. It, you, that feels like there's, I don't know what the differences between those two things are, but they're minor. But like it was a requirement of the Catholic church, right? Like Catholic priests won't marry you unless you're two Catholics. So people just did it. I don't think there's like a lot of like re-education involved. But I think the only thing that sort of gives me pause about sort of bringing up her Scientology is like, it does seem that like she was raised in it, right? Like it's like a, she didn't decide when she was 30 to become a Scientologist. And she doesn't seem, I don't think she's living a dedicated religious life. She seems to be a completely normal modern woman. Um, And clearly like she's choosing roles that are, um, you know, strong female roles and stuff. So I don't, that's my only pause. Yeah. And I, I think that one thing we're not given at all uh, which is offered in many religions. Uh, you know, often in a religion, they'll say, <laughs> in the foundational text of a religion, it'll say, like, life here might suck, but in the afterlife, it's going to be cool, right? And that sort of can, like, tamp down your desire to not be a peasant or to not be starving or, you know, whatever. Like, whatever misery can sort of be Because you'll inherit the earth. Right. That does not seem to be the case here. They do not seem to be offering even a thread of hope to the handmaids who are like definitely, but I, I mean, I will say this has historically been true of, of, of religion. That hope seems to be pretty dangerous, right? Like you can offer, if you offer people the next world, they might go, well, what if this one was better? Um, and, and so I think that like what they have deleted, I think probably to their peril, I think if I had to predict, um, Gilead's not long for this world, <laughs> Uh, you know, I feel like their, their conception, their offering of religion is extremely flawed, even on the terms of like most religions, you know, I think that they're not really offering them any hope. Um, you know, when you force someone to give their children away, obviously that is about as like low as you can go when you rape them and you take away their babies. Um, it seems like they would say like, maybe they would go, yeah, like, you know, the next life is going to be cool, but it doesn't seem like they're offering that at all. These people have no salvation. They're, they're not being offered any chance of salvation. It's not like, oh, you know, yes, this is one of the worst things that could possibly happen to you, but you will be rewarded with the afterlife. Instead, you're getting, this is the worst thing that could possibly happen to you, but you're supposed to be grateful for it for some reason because you have this wonderful opportunity to further the human race, I guess, is kind of the like, I think but it's not even the, the human race. It's just like this one group. I think also the implication is like basically uh, you should be happy you're not dead, which I think historically is a really bad 
a proposition for people well, because people just kill themselves. But also, like, life isn't actually innately valuable if it really sucks, right? Like, so, so like, I, yeah, I, I, I think, and maybe it's a good place to sort of wrap this up, but. I, I think the fundamental question of the show, and for me, it's sort of like verging on sort of being like problematic at this point is like, what do they want? Right. The society doesn't seem like to be that awesome for anybody involved. It seems sort of like, and I know that they keep saying like, it's this like sort of transitional phase. It's very new, but I think that like, there is a base problem, which is like, is this, is this, is this all there is? Is this it? What, what do they want? Yeah, I mean, the book had that problem too, right? Like, it didn't, but it didn't need to solve it because of the perspective. Whereas the show, like, kind of does need to give us, I think, a little right. bit it more. It showed us, like, so narrow of a focus. And, like, the, even, like, the, the narrator seems, like, somewhat questionable in the book. Well, and also, like, how would she know? There would be no way for her to find out some of those right, like, questions, right. the answers to some of those questions. Whereas in the show, like, we do have a little bit broader of a scope of the world that, like, yeah. It begs the question, right? When he's talking about, I do think we're going to get more of that because I think they're aware of it. Because, you know, they give us like he's going and like the UN is doing mm-hmm. a thing and he's going to Mexico and you get a little bit more of that like outside world perspective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm curious if they're going to use the scene in the book where the Japanese tourists show up and like start walking around. Yes. Because <laughs> that was very weird in the book. And I am i don't think they'll put it in the show, but it would be really interesting to see how like do they let tourists in? Like are people allowed to come and see right. this place or is it totally closed off? Right. And so I guess that sort of like for me, I don't know what else you have to talk about, but for me, my question at this point is like, do you like the show? (laughs) I mean, I have a lot of critiques of the show. Mm -hmm. I think that I've actually been really surprised by how positive all the reviews have been. Like almost like, like superlative, like the the best show that's like, you know, it just feels like people are projecting a lot onto the show to me Mm -hmm. a little bit. Like they really want it to be good. I also want it to be good. I like it. I, I, this is maybe coming off as a little too critical. I do like the show. I think there are some choices that I really don't like. I think some of the sound design is like very heavy handed. If I have to hear another heartbeat sound effect to like show things, I'm going to jump out a window. I feel that way about some of the Um, filming, about some of the visuals, but Um, But but I do think that they're doing something interesting. And I think that like there is this element, it seems to me among like particularly like the liberal women who I read who review shows uh, that like this show is sort of acting as a vessel for like all of our media resistance to the current administration. Uh, And it feels like it needs to be good and it needs to be super interesting. It needs to be all these things because this is kind of like we're putting all of our eggs in one basket in some ways. Like this is the show that is going to like do this thing. And I think that that's not fair to the show. I think that's like also a little bit naive. Uh, And I think that like it's causing I think that's maybe what what is driving so many of these reviews that like I like the show, but I read some of these reviews and I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Yeah, I was very surprised when the sort of like when the sort of like review embargo broke, which was like maybe the week before the show actually came out, I had seen, I think, two episodes of the show at that point. And I was sort of like fearing, I feel this way whenever I read like a pre-release book. I'm always like very nervous on behalf of the creator, right? Yeah, I'm like, too. I, I don't know, like that, I I don't know them anything, but I'm like, oh my God, I hope it's reviewed well, even if it's like, right, like what if something goes really badly and like there's something I didn't know right. that like I didn't notice. That, so, like, yeah. But so when I... So I was fully expecting them to at least comment on like my one dumbest observation, which is this show is depressing, right? Like it's oppressively depressing. It's yeah. it's so maybe more than any show I've ever seen. And I would love to hear if you have like a better um a better example. It's like the most depressing thing I've ever watched. And that doesn't mean I don't enjoy watching it. I do. Um, and I look forward to sort of watching each new episode and seeing where it goes. But that's because I have the sense or the feeling or the hope that it's actually going somewhere <laughs> um, that's not where it is right now. Because where it is right now is like – it is – I mean, look, I think that like it's depressing for a reason. I think it's depressing uh, for important reasons. And I think that's what why it's being reviewed really well. But I also thought like, well, when people review it, they're at least going to say, hey, this is like hard to watch. <laughs> But, like, no one even says that. They actually, like, are like, oh, you know, the the dark parts are sort of broken up by humor. And I'm like, what? I don't, <laughs> I don't feel that at all. Yeah. Like, I mean, while I'm right. watching it, I'm, like, actively, like, like, uh, there's, like, 20 more minutes, you know? Yeah. Um, do you want to do predictions again or? I think next week, I think the next episode we're going to see more of Nick. That's what I think. And he's kind of the only character that hasn't been basically developed at all. Yeah. So I think But I do think that like his nature and his nature in the book is is the same where he's he's unknowable in a lot of ways. Like he's just very 
He's a classic Margaret Atwood man. Exactly. Uh, in, in I'm like going to throw out. No. Oh, go ahead. Go ahead. No, that's. I'm going to throw out a, a prediction that I think is probably wrong, but I think in the next two episodes we're going to see some big thing with the daughter. Like something is going to happen to because in the last episode we saw her coming back from the doctor and she starts crying and say like talking to her daughter and kind of like we get a little bit more of her yeah. kind of being upset about that. I think we're going to see. Something happened either in the flashbacks where it's like really specific or even now, like the modern day, I think we're going to see the the daughter involved. I don't think you're probably wrong about that. I haven't really thought about – I mean I it is like a focus. It's something in the back of my mind all the time. I do think they're sort of like dangling those pieces in pretty well. Um, but yeah, I think that that is definitely to be explored pretty soon. So I don't know. If I, I think at some point like you can only dangle a missing daughter for so long before you give us a little bit more. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, because sure. enough people they know enough people watching the show are going to have kids that like and other mothers. And we'll talk about this in a future episode about motherhood. But another woman who I know who just had a baby, she said she actually couldn't watch the show because she was just like, I totally I can't. Yeah. She had like yeah. just had a baby like two months ago. Uh, yeah. And she was just like, I absolutely cannot even handle this. Um, so I do think that like they're they know that enough people are going to latch on to that, that like yeah. they're they need to give us something. All right. So that's all for this episode of The Red Center. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe or rate us on Apple Podcasts or find more ways to subscribe at theoutline.com slash podcasts. We'll be back in a week and every week for new episodes. I'm Laura June. I'm Rose Eveleth. Under his eye. Under his eye. <laughs> <laughs>